Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, our topic for tonight will be Har Herzl, Mount Herzl. So this will be the last of the mountains we're going to address. So we have, we've covered all the mountains of Yerushalayim. This is the last one. And then we'll do other sites. Uh, so in the old days, sacred space was of a religious nature in the land of Israel. But with modern Zionism, you can have secular national so-called sacred space, that on this spot, something of great historic significance happened, and therefore it's a makom kadosh without the religion. Well, if I were to ask you, what's the first such national, secular, sacred space in modern Israel, what would it be? The first, chronologically, the first one. Huh? Well, that's way late in the game. I'm talking about 1920. Oh. Tel Chai. What happened to Tel Chai? Oh, Yosef yeah. Trumpeldor finds his meets his end, and he says, "Tov lamut It's good to die for your country. Whether he really said that, we don't know, but that's what they say he said. All right. Um, so Tel Chai is the first such location. The second such location, it's up in the north, the Panhandle of the Galilee. The second such location is Masada. Now, let me ask you a question. Why am I putting Masada chronologically after Tel Chai if the events of Masada happened 1900 years before Tel Chai? The answer is because Masada wasn't important until the 1940s. Its uh, significance in Zionist ethos and youth movement culture developed in the late 30s and in the early 40s. It was basically an off-limits place out in the middle of nowhere. You couldn't even get there, let alone get to the top of it. And only a handful of people even had the chutzpah to try to get to the top of it. But by 1943, it became something of a common practice that the youth movements would go up there. And it was a national sacred space, but secular because there's no religious component to it. After Masada, the next place is, following the Declaration of Statehood, Mount Herzl. Why? Because of three interrelated, but in some ways distinct, components to Mount Herzl. One was the reinterment of Theodor Herzl himself, after which the mountain is named. The second is the National Military Cemetery, where, which occupies the bulk of the mountain and has thousands and thousands of graves. And the third is the section for the Gidolei Hauma, the greats of the nation. If you recall from two weeks ago, I said that on Mount Scopus, there was supposed to be the pantheon for the greats of the nation, and it it fizzled out because Scopus was off limits after the War of Independence, and for the next 19 years, it was essentially a no-go zone. So it only was for Pinsker and Yusishkin, who were buried there, and everyone's forgotten about it, and the security guard doesn't even know that it's there. Okay, so there had to be another location for the greats of the state of Israel and the Zionist movement. Why this particular location and why in connection with Herzl in the military cemetery, that's what I'm going to try to explain tonight. Okay, so there was a request in Herzl's will uh, that he be buried in the land of Israel and that he be brought there by a Jewish state. The biblical examples and precedent for this, of course, is Yaakov, Yosef, all right, they wanted to be buried in Israel. 
So aside from biblical precedent, which may have meant not all that much to a guy like Herzl who wasn't into the religion, there's also the moral obligation to get it done. It says in the, in the Mishnah, mitzvah lishmol adivrei hames. It's an affirmative obligation to adhere to the requests of the deceased. You know, they made the request in their lifetime and now they're gone. We have a, a solemn responsibility to try to fulfill it to the best of our ability. So already in 1927, people wanted to move the body from Vienna to Eretz Yisrael. Um, but nothing was done at that time. The Zionist executive decided in 1935 that Herzl had to be in Jerusalem. Long run, when they eventually moved the body, where is it going? Not just any spot in, in, in the land of Israel. It's going to go to Jerusalem. Um, and in December 1948, a decision was reached after statehood had been declared and the government was operating that it was time to act. Uh, in 1948, the myth of the founding father would find realization in the state as the fulfillment of Herzl's dream. So Der Judenstaat, written in 1896, which forms the basis for the 1897 Basel Congress, and uh, which Herzl says, at Basel I founded the Jewish state. So is there really a connection between Herzl and the state as it was formed 51 years later? Yes, arguably, of, of course. But you could also say, you know, it's a very tenuous connection. That he was long dead, had nothing to do with it. It was other people who, who got the job done. But yet, understood. You can, you can always draw connections to a prior figure or try to untie those connections since they're not around anymore and some time has passed. You could say other, other players were involved. Okay, so not only do Jews like to look back, and find justification in the heroes of the past, it's that the state of Israel, when it comes into being, is a controversial entity. And in December of 1948, no election had been held. Who says that David Ben-Gurion is the boss of a Jewish country? He does. Now, in January of 49, there will be an election, which his party wins, and he's oversees the first Knesset and remains prime minister for the next bunch of years, aside from a brief retirement. But when the state was declared, by what right does he have to say, I'm the boss of this country? So looking back to Herzl and saying there is a direct connection between Zionist leadership of the beginning of the movement through the Jewish agency up to the date of statehood allows for Ben-Gurion to claim the legitimacy of the state on the back of the broader movement. Okay, well, uh, the committee was formed of representatives of the government, of the state of Israel, and the World Zionist Organization, which are now two separate entities. The WZO is not the state of Israel, is not the government of Israel. It's an independent organization with some overlap, but after 48, they're separate institutions. And this committee was established to choose a site where to bury Herzl. Three cities other than Jerusalem were involved in the competition to see where, who would get the corpse. Can you guess what those three cities were? Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Herzliya. Kishmo Kane who? All right. They want, Herzliya wants Herzl. Okay. But they all lose. And on December 21st, 1948, Jerusalem was selected. There's a reason 
why Jerusalem was selected, aside from the fact that, you know, it's you know, the holy city and important, it's, oh, okay, it's not the capital yet, but the desire is to make it the capital. Jerusalem is not part of the state of Israel in the early days of the state. It's contr- the western half of the city is controlled by Jews, by, by the Zionist leadership, and by Dov Yosef as a governor. But technically speaking, Israel has not announced its borders. The partition plan calls for international Jerusalem. So Lamaisa, practically, the IDF is in control of half the city. But is it part of sovereign Israel? Is it the capital of Israel? No, not necessarily. The, the government was functioning out of Tel Aviv at that time. But Ben-Gurion had in his mind, we're going to make Jerusalem the capital. And one of the ways you do it is by putting facts on the ground. One of the facts you can put in the ground is the founder of your movement, Theodore Herzl. So the political status of Jerusalem had not yet been determined. And this was a way of staking a claim. Uh, ultimately, the, the status of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel will be resolved as we've in the past lectures we've discussed, between December of 49 and March of 1950, the institutions of state are moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem with the exception of the defense ministry and foreign foreign ministry. Okay, so where to bury him in Jerusalem? A decision was reached not to bury Herzl in an existing cemetery among other Jews, because then he'll just blend into the scenery. We want him to stand out in his own location. But where is that location going to be? So first of all, the land must be owned by Jews. We don't want a controversy of, well, this spot was stolen from the Arabs or stolen from the French church or the Russian Orthodox church or whatever it is. A lot of Jerusalem is owned by foreign churches and Arabs. Okay, so make sure that that's not the case, that it's land bought by the JNF and is definitely and unambiguously in the the possession of Jews. Uh, Secondly, and and by the way, this is like Maratha Machpelah all over again. You know, Avraham buys Maratha Machpelah so that nobody should claim it, it doesn't belong to him. Well, the second consideration is it has to have security features. Most important security feature, out of the shelling range of the Jordanian artillery. Remember, Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, is a city surrounded on three sides, north, east, and south, by a hostile neighbor. Only to the west is it Jewish country, the Jerusalem corridor. So you got to put it pretty far to the west and not too close to the north and not too close to the south. Okay, with that in mind, a barren hilltop was selected on the western approaches to West Jerusalem in the vicinity of Bait Vagan. It had topographical dominance and panoramic views of the surrounding countryside. So it's a great spot. But then the question is, having selected the site, when are you going to do the ceremony? When's this going to happen? So if it were up to you and you had the location, what day, what anniversary, special red-letter day in the calendar would you select to bring the body of Herzl from Vienna to Jerusalem, huh? Okay, that's a reasonable suggestion. What, any other suggestion? His yard site, his birthday, something specific, Herzl specific. Okay, all those are good possibilities. So, among the various suggestions, 
that were put forth but were overlooked was the day of the opening of the Knesset in uh, February of 49. Pesach, Herzl's yard site, ultimately a random date was selected, August 18th, 1949. Um, why? Because the government finally got around, got attacked together. Remember, there were other things happening at that time. A war was coming to an end. A Knesset was convening to, to, for, to start off. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were being com- coming in from the, the Arab countries, and some Holocaust survivors were coming in from Europe. So it's a chaotic time in Israel. And uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't think it was it was after Tisha B'Av and before, before Rosh Hashanah. It may have been late in Av or beginning of Elul. I'm not really sure. Um, so the public was disappointed that they weren't invited to attend. Now, 6,000 people were invited to attend, and 6,000 people is a lot of people, but you couldn't, you had to be on like some special guest list. If you were just some Joe Schmo living in Tel Aviv and you wanted to go to it, you, you were not invited. You couldn't be there, um, although it was broadcast on the radio. So there were, um, there were people coming from all the settlements of Eretz Yisrael, every individual yeshuv, somebody showed up and had soil from their kibbutz, their moshav, their whatever it is that they come from, a little, a little cup of soil, and they spill it into the grave. <laughs> now, bear in mind, in Chutzla Aretz, in the diaspora, what do Jews do? They take some soil from Eretz Yisrael that you hope really was from Eretz Yisrael and that was not a scam, all right, and you pour it into Bobby Yazadi's grave, all right, and they have a connection to Eretz Yisrael. So, fine, that's for the Chutzlar to connect to, to the Holy Land. This was connecting the entirety of the Holy Land into one spot, meaning there's unity of the land and unity of the people in solidarity with the movement of Zionism as founded by Herzl. So, There was a lot of achdut, unity, uh, on display here, symbolically. Um, One of the reasons for this notion of the unity of the land is that not all of the land is in Jewish control. We're talking about the 1949 borders, where the bulk of the the traditional Eretz Yisrael is in Jordanian hands, and some of it's in Egyptian hands in Gaza, whatever it is. Not all of Eretz Yisrael is in Jewish hands, but whatever we do have, we're united together. Okay. Then, uh, no, no, no. So within days, tens of thousands of Israelis had visited the site and it became a place of major pilgrimage. This is significant because very few people, very few Israelis visited Yerushalayim before the Six-Day War. If you lived in the Galilee, you lived in the Negev somewhere, or even if you lived in Tel Aviv, you had your life in your town, and transportation wasn't all that convenient in those days. There were bus service, there was some train service, but it was fairly limited. You didn't go gallivanting around the whole country, and most likely you didn't go to Jerusalem all that much, if ever. Okay? There was nothing to see. There was nothing to see in Jerusalem in 1949. Okay, the only thing you could go to was Har Tzion, which itself was dangerous because the Jordanian snipers could kill you. All right, if you were not a Haredi going to Meir Sharim for, for, to buy Sfarim or whatever it is, to learn in the yeshiva, what was there to go to in Yerushalayim? There was nothing. The government wasn't even there yet. Even when the government gets there, it's just in a, the Fruman House on, on King George Street, in a, you know, a, little, a little operation. So 
there was it was a dusty border town that happened to have turned into the capital of the country, but not nothing to see here. But with the arrival of Herzl's tomb and Har Herzl becoming a national military cemetery and so on and so forth, that became an attraction. So the arrival of Herzl made a significant national attraction in an otherwise boring West Jerusalem. Okay. Now, after uh, the burial and the ceremony was over, people kind of forgot about it, you know? It's there. Herzl's buried there. It's a makeshift grave. No, no special mausoleum had been built yet or any, any contraption of any kind. Later on, it would come. We'll discuss that in a second. Uh, so what happens when you have a, a place of significance that is not well tended to, not well guarded? It's graffiti, vandalism, whatever it is, something bad can happen. It doesn't look nice. It's very, it's embarrassing. So who complained about this? The Cherut complained about it. Menachem Begin, the head of the Cherut party, uh, who regards himself as a successor to Jabotinsky, who himself regards himself as a successor to Herzl, uh, as you know, the unadulterated Zionist, says, hey, this is totally inappropriate. We need an honor guard. It should come as no surprise that the right wing is interested in honor guard. You know, Beitar in Europe had brown-shirted uniforms and salutes and looked like a military formation. While the left-wing Zionists were a bunch of ragtag types, the right-wingers, who were numerically much smaller, always were interested in Hadar and glory and beauty and military discipline uh, and the, the honorifics of the military. So they wanted an honor guard. Okay, so the government capitulated and, and, and put one in. Um, now, the JNF owned the land, and the Jewish agency developed the site. But the World Zionist Organization had control over the site, not the state of Israel. And that's going to be an important distinction. The WZO controls the site, not the state of Israel. So next question is, how do we decorate the place? Is there going to be a big mausoleum or a modest monument? You know, a, mats- a little matseva? Or a big production to, to cover over Herzl's tomb. What do you think? Okay, so while there were those who favored a big mausoleum, ultimately it was decided that it's more appropriate for a popular and scrappy movement like Zionism that brought the Jewish people from their bootstraps to have a plain, modest monument, not an over-the-top, uh, you know, mausoleum which would be inappropriate so the herzl memorial competition was started how do you like that the herzl memorial competition uh it was proclaimed by the government on september 11th 1950 and the the those who entered into the competition the contestants were told to take into account jewish religious tradition regarding figurative decoration in other words there are things that we, we, we don't put, uh, religious Jews don't put on a tombstone. So keep that in mind when you make your grandiose designs, you submit to the, com- the, the, the competition committee. So the winner, well, in the meantime, a flat stone was put with Herzl written on it and no vault, no vault, just a flat stone above the, 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 the grave. The winner was Yosef Osip Klarwein. Klarwein was a Polish-Israeli-American uh, um, architect and designer. He eventually would design the Knesset. He won that competition in the late 50s. 
and it took seven years to build the Knesset. It wasn't dedicated to 1966. We'll discuss that in a few weeks from now. But he won the competition for the Herzl tomb. What was his design? A 16-ton rectangular block stone um, with Herzl in gold letters on the side. So a black stone just with Herzl in gold letters on the side. So if you've been there, that's what you saw. That's all that's there. Nothing fancy. And that was the winning entry. Uh, when was this installed? It was not installed until a decade after Herzl got to, to Herzl. In 1960, uh, for, Herz, uh, for Herzl's yard site, there was a big production. Uh, actually, not for the yard site, for Herzl's 100th birthday. But I believe it happened on the yard site. So he was born in 1860, and this happened in 1960 that they unveiled the, uh, you know, the big unveiling of the, of the Blackstone uh, block. And little stones were placed around the big block stone. If you've been there, you've seen it, you look pictures of it, you'll see there's like a little garden of, of small stones around the, 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 the tomb. And those stones come from every settlement in Eretz Israel. So if there was soil in the 1949 ceremony into the grave proper, in 1960, there's a little rock, a little pebble, something from every yeshuv of Medinat Israel. Okay. So the barren hilltop was transformed into a park with empty space around Herzl's tomb and then the important people in a, in a circle around him. But a lot of empty space so that he stands alone. He stands alone. The grave is the mythic Herzl. That's where the, the myth lives on. What about the historical figure of Herzl? Where does that live on? In the museum at the bottom of the hill. So if you, if you, if you go on to, to Har Herzl, there's an entrance to the, to, the, to the park, so to speak, or the cemetery. And at that entrance, if you go to the right, you go into like a sort of a twisty maze and you end up on the mountain seeing the graves. If you go to the left, you go to a museum. And they have, you know, the videos playing, the movies playing. But they also have Herzl's working office, the artifacts of his office that he had in Vienna when he was alive, you know, 1898, 1899, 1900, until he died in 1904. So that office was preserved intact in Vienna um, up until 1938. And then very quickly after the Anschluss, maybe just before the Anschluss, was, re- was removed from Vienna and taken to Jerusalem, where it was kept in the National Institutions Building, about which we'll speak next time. The National Institutions Building is the building on King George, um, where the, the JNF and the WZO is located. Okay, so it was kept there, and then it was moved to the Herzl Museum on Har Herzl. So when you go, you learn some facts, some real history, and then you go up and you see the mythical Herzl on the mountain. Okay, what was uh, what took place at Har Herzl in the olden days? Because after the Six Day War, a lot changed, and the action was moved to the Kotel and other locations. But before the sixty-seven, where Har Herzl was the main attraction of West Jerusalem, certain things occurred there. So one of them was. Uh, in December of 1949, the Oath of Allegiance was a mass demonstration opposing the United Nations plan to internationalize Jerusalem. So a big rally was held at Herzl's tomb to support continued Jewish control 
over at least Western Yerushalayim and for the annexation and making into a capital of that half of the city and to oppose whatever the, the, the Goyim want to do to us. Also, the Gadna, the, the youth movement, they celebrated Hanukkah in 1949 on Har Herzl to mark military heroism and the government's decision to move the capital. There was a, a relay race, the beacons of light, just like before the Olympics, the, the Olympic torch goes from one place to the other and eventually goes to the Olympic stadium and some guy shoots an arrow and it goes in and NBC covers it and whoosh, and fire. Okay, so in 1949, what happened? There was like a race, so to speak, of the light for the menorah on Hanukkah from Modi'in, the home of the Maccabees, to Har Herzl. And a big menorah by his grave, boom, light the candles. So very using it for symbolic purposes. Okay. The annual Yom Ha'atzmaut ceremony took place on Har Herzl. But the truth of the matter is that a grave site was an inappropriate location for national events. You know, in America, yes, there's Arlington Cemetery, but where's the July 4th celebration? On the mall, by the Capitol, by the Lincoln Memorial. We're not where the dead people are located. Okay, it's just, it's unseemly to have national festivities at a gravesite. So... That's one problem with it. The other is it can't be fully open to the public. It's not that large. Uh, and it also needed WZO approval because it wasn't controlled by the state. It's controlled by the World Zionist Organization. So from 1951 and onward, these Yom Ha'atzmaut ceremonies did happen there, but they were covered on radio with a small crowd. And from 1969, they were covered on TV, again, with a small crowd. Eventually, it was moved away from Har Herzl to the Kota. Okay. In 1951, it was decided to allocate some space on Mount Herzl for other Zionist leaders. But when I say Zionist leaders, I don't mean the official government leadership of the state of Israel, Medinat Israel. First of all, they're all alive because the state was founded two seconds earlier. So they're, all, they're not dead yet. But what I mean by Zionist leadership is I mean those who held Herzl's position. What was Herzl's position? president of the World Zionist Organization. So who was Herzl's successor? David Wolfson. After Wolfson, there was Sirkin, there was Weizmann, there were a few others throughout the pre-state history. But the WZO who controls the site says Herzl's official successors can be buried here. So David Wolfson, who died in 1911, I think, was brought to Israel. What about Jabotinsky? So Jabotinsky had been a major Zionist leader. Official Zionist leader, not the, the president, but up there in the high ranks until he broke away. And why did he break away? Because he had political differences and he founded the new Zionist organization and he founded the Revisionist Party. But what about Jabotinsky? He wanted to be buried in Israel and he had in his will that you shall disinter me from his, you know, the, the plot he was in in Wellwood, where he was, where he died in 1940. Okay, he was buried in Suffolk County because he died in New York. He died upstate in the camp. Uh, and he said, I want to go to Israel by the government decision of Israel, by the Jewish state's decision. So Ben-Gurion, who didn't like Jabotinsky, said, we're not making no decision. I'm, not, I'm, I'm the boss here and I'm not bringing them to Israel. Only Herzl and the Nadiv, Rothschild, in Ben-Gurion's view, had done enough to foster Zionism as to warrant being brought as a dead body, having long ago been buried, to Eretz Israel." Said Jabotinsky, no way, doesn't rise to the uh, to the level. Well, 
uh, when Ben-Gurion retired for, uh, from the sec- for the second time from the prime ministership in 1963, he was succeeded by Levi Eshkol. And Eshkol was more of a conciliatory figure and wanted to bury the hatchet, so to speak, or bury Jabotinsky, literally. <laughs> so uh, he said in March, March 15th, actually, tomorrow is the anniversary, uh, 60 years ago, that, okay, we're going to bury Jabotinsky. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in Israel. But he was vague about when it was going to happen. And on April 2nd, 1964, he made a further announcement, like, we're really going to do it soon. It's going to happen this year. So uh, the burial was um, a private matter, whereas the reinterment of Herzl was a WZO official event. The Jabotinsky burial was a private family matter. And it happened on July 9th, 1964. Uh, Jabotinsky was buried in a plot where dirt was put in from Mount Zion and Har Hazetim. How they got that dirt, I'm not sure, but and from other revisionist sacred spots. So they again, this business of pouring soil from other locations into the grave to represent you know, what was important in your life. Who was present? at this burial ceremony in 1964. So first of all, there was a big to-do in Long Island. I think people from Woodmere may have participated in that ceremony. They went out to, the, to, the, to, the, to Wellwood and they got the body and they took it to Idlewild Airport, okay, for the flight to Israel. There were Beitar youth ceremonies and revisionist ceremonies here in New York. Then it got to, uh, to Israel. And the, again, the travel from, from the airport to Yerushalayim, but who's going to show up for this, this funeral? Begin, definitely. Okay, so of course Begin will be there. He's the leader of the revisionists, and he regards himself as Jabotinsky's successor. But Begin is merely an opposition member of the, of the Knesset. He's no powerful figure. The president of the state, who's the president of the state? Zalman Shazar. Okay, the third president of Israel, Zalman Shazar, he was there. The cabinet was present. But the prime minister himself, Levi Eshkol, was conveniently in France, having meetings with Charles de Gaulle. Okay, so it was a deliberate semi-snub that he, he facilitated the whole thing Eshkol did. And the, the president was there and the chief rabbi was there in the cabinet, but he wasn't there. Okay, just to prove the point. Now, the spot chosen was in between Herzl and Yad Vashem, which we'll get to, we'll discuss Yad Vashem soon enough. It was a separate plot for the Jabotinsky family. His wife also would be buried there. Now, the choice of Mount Herzl, Har Herzl, as a military cemetery, that's element number two. So if element number one was Herzl himself, element number two was the the National Military Cemetery. When was this decision made? It was made in the summer of 1949, that the northern slope of Har Herzl would become a military cemetery, for, the, for those who died in the War of Independence. Now, when it began, the intention was just for those who died in the War of Independence. Nobody can predict the future and know there'll be future wars and that there'll have to be sections for each war. It's just for what we need now. But wait a second. If it's already the summer of 49 and the war ended a few months ago, where were these people buried? Those who died 6, 8, 12, 14 months earlier, where are the bodies? The answer is they were in a temporary location in the Sheikh Badr. Sheikh Badr was an Arab village which was dis- dislocated, uh, de- depopulated, and that land 
would go on to become the area where the Knesset is located and the park south of the Knesset, you know, the, the basically there's an oval, not a rectum, more like an oval, where the Knesset and the Supreme Court is at the north end, and then there's like a park area, and people walk around, there's trees, it's nice, it's in the valley. So that area had been an Arab neighborhood. Not anymore. Right after the war was, was over, several hundred soldiers who died were buried there in temporary graves. But it was known at the time that this was going to be a temporary solution. And there needed to be a long-term cemetery for uh, you know, military fallen. Just like there'd be a, a need for a new cemetery to replace Haraz 18, which is no longer available. So Haram and Uchot and other locations become the, you know, the, the, the needed alternative. Okay, so the bones were taken out of the temporary location and placed on Har Herzl, and that, that formed the beginning of the military cemetery. Yes, yes. Uh, and Rav Gorin, who was the chief rabbi of the army, played a very important role in making sure this was done in a dignified fashion. Now, he, didn't, he was very assertive, Rav Gorin. He did not let the secular authorities of the state push him around. He insisted upon certain things, and especially when it came to burial of the dead, that was a, a, a military rabbinate responsibility, and he would, played a critical role in the, in the establishment of Har Herzl's military cemetery. So uh, this new military cemetery was totally independent of Herzl's tomb, but the symbolic connection was obvious. Uh, that there is, a, there is a correlation between the beginnings of Zionism and the flowering of Zionism and the ultimate success of Zionism, which comes with a price of the loss of soldiers who die in war. Now, it was originally just for, as I said, the War of Independence. It later had to be expanded to include subsequent wars and therefore became a chronological outdoor museum of Israeli history. So if you've been to Har Herzl, I suggest you walk up the hill as you, you see the passage of time. You look at the stones, and all it has is the name uh, and the date of birth and date of death of the, of the person who passed away. There's not much further information. The, the, the stones are deliberately very uh, simplistic. But you see the years go by. And some years were better years when the country didn't lose too many soldiers, and other years were disastrous years whether because of outright war or not necessarily outright war, but you know, significant and repeated Fedayeen attacks or terror attacks or operations against, against the PLO, whatever it might be, there are years which were far worse than others. So it's, an, it's effectively an outdoor museum that tells the story, but not just through the tombstones of those who are buried there, but also through the memorials to those who are not buried there. Now, what am I referring to? So if you've been to Har Herzl, you'll know you get to a spot where there are several, you could call them almost museum exhibits, which are memorials to people whose bodies could not be brought there. So what am I referring to? There is a special section added for those who are MIA. There have been MIA, sadly, in pretty much every one of Israel's wars, where the body was never recovered. Also, there was a memorial for those who were buried in Har Hazetim, but which was inaccessible for 19 years. So if you had a son or a father, whatever it is, who was buried in Har Hazetim and you couldn't get there, so now at least on Har Herzl, 
we recognized your pain and suffering, and there was a, a spot in memory of those who, who are buried three miles away, but you know, in Jordanian territory. There was also a memorial for the Dakar. What was the Dakar? The submarine that's, that went to the bottom, okay, that was found years and years later. Uh, but for many decades, it was unknown where it had gone down. Uh, I believe 69 soldiers, uh, sailors were aboard. So there's a memorial for that. There's also, uh, it's not entirely clear why it went down, uh, whether it was just mechanical failure or something else. But there's also uh, a, a commemoration for the 23 um, Haganah fighters who died at Tripoli in 1941 fighting the Nazis. Remember, Israel, uh, pre-Israel, the Haganah and the Palmach fought on behalf of the British against Nazi allied forces, Vichy allied forces in Lebanon. And sadly, 23 died when their boat sank off the coast of Tripoli. So again, there's a memorial for them. There's also a memorial for those who fought in the Jewish Brigade and died fighting the Nazis in Italy. Recall that in 1944, after long prodding and pleading with the British authorities, there was a Jewish brigade established by the Jews of Eretz Israel to fight under a Zionist, you know, Magin David flag, and they fought in battles against the German army, against the Wehrmacht in, in Italy, in northern Italy in 1945, and some died. So th- they also have their memorial on, on Har Herzl. Also, Chana Senesh was put to Har Herzl. So all of this is to show that the struggle against the Nazis can be and should be integrated into the national narrative. There's a historical continuity. Pre-state heroic sacrifice of the Yishuv, World War II, independence and beyond. So 1948 is an important date, but it's just a date. The experience of the Jewish people goes back a long time and continues into the future. And all the heroism is going to be found right here on Har Herzl, regardless of when that sacrifice might have been made. Okay. Yom Azikaron was switched to the Kotel in 1969, but the ceremony for the MIA continues to be held at Har Herzl at Yom Azikaron until this, until this day, until, until modern times. Okay. Uh, it, it's not a big event, but it's an event for those who have, whose family were MIA, yeah. Now, the, the third component of the mountain is the greats of the nation. The Gedolei Ha'uma. And in some ways, this is like the pettiest and, and funniest of all the three components. There was the Herzl Burial, National Military Cemetery, now Gedolei Ha'uma. So this section began in 1952, when Finance Minister Eliezer Kaplan died. You never heard of Eliezer Kaplan, did you? Never heard of him. Okay. Maybe you did, but uh, you probably never heard of him. Was he that important? Okay, he was important in his time. I'm not going to poo-poo his significance. Okay, he held the purse strings when the state was was first uh, established, but he's not the he's not Herzl. He's not Ben Gurion, and yet when he died, Ben Gurion wanted him buried on Har Herzl in a prestigious location, and the custodians of Herzl's tomb said no, no. Why? Because the original deal struck between the JNF, who bought the land, and the Jewish agency that developed the site, and the World Zionist Organization that, uh, that operated the site, 
was that only the former heads of the WZO, meaning Herzl's job, would be entitled for burial on this VIP mountain. But Ben-Gurion did an end run around them by announcing a unilateral decision that the Gedulei Hauma would be on, on Har Herzl near the military cemetery. How could he get away with this, overriding those who are technically responsible for, for the, the site? The answer is, well, he's Ben-Gurion. He can be a dictator if he wants. But more importantly, he was not only the prime minister, he was the defense minister. And as the defense minister, he had ruled the roost over the military cemetery. So he just extended it a little bit to include a new section called Gedalei Homa, right flush against the Herzl, Herzl tomb. Now, why did he do this? What was his point? Did he really care about Eliezer Kaplan being buried near Herzl as opposed to Kaplan being buried in a family plot somewhere in, uh, in Naharia? I mean, was it that important to him? I'll explain why. Okay, so the reason... the, the Elsewhere, so we're going to see the real the real meaning of all this was that he wanted to prove that Medinat Israel, the state of Israel, as represented by its government, which means him, the prime minister and defense minister, or whoever his successors might be, that those institutions of state have now replaced completely the authorities of the pre-state institutions, JNF, Jewish Agency. WZO, they were all important in a bygone era, but he stresses bygone era, goodbye, I'm the boss now, the state is in control, not the pre-state institutions that are now legacy institutions with little to say about anything. Okay, so the WZO in his mind is irrelevant. As far as Ben-Gurion is concerned, Zionism died on May 14th, 1948. The day it succeeded is the day the movement died. Now we have Israel. Okay, so it was a power grab. That was successful. It was entirely successful. Kaplan, it turned out, was just a test case. And in fact, he was the only minister ever buried in the plot of the Gedolei Hauma. Because in fact, the only people who would be entitled to be, to be buried there would be speakers of the Knesset, prime ministers, presidents, and their spouses. Not government ministers, members of Knesset, members of the opposition. Those are too low ranking. Knesset speaker, prime minister, presidents, and spouses. No, no. Okay, so what ended up happening? Uh, the next person to be buried there was Yosef Spinzak, who was a Knesset speaker. He died in 1959. But not all national leaders chose to be buried on Har Herzl. In fact, a whole bunch of them chose other places. So, for example, in 1952, Chaim Weizmann, who did not really get along with Ben-Gurion all that well. Uh, they had many of a fierce battle against each other. Weizmann died with, as president in office, and he was buried in Rehovot, near his home, near his scientific uh, place of study. So he, he did not want Har Herzl. Yitzchak Ben Svi died in 1963, was buried in Har Menuchot because he wanted a very modest burial, not in the VIB section. Ben-Gurion died in 1973 at the age of uh, 87 in stable care in the kibbutz, uh, in the Negev, because he loved the Negev, and that was what was meaningful to him. He did not want to be buried in Har Herzl. All right, Menachem Begin was buried in Har Azetim, because he wanted to be buried between Barazani and Feinstein, the heroes of, uh, uh, of the battle against the British who committed suicide in the jail. All right, so everybody had their reason why they didn't want to go to Har Herzl. Well, 
who did go to Har Herzl, a few of the, you know, the others, the most important and famous, of course, is Yitzhak Rabin. When Rabin was assassinated, so Har Herzl became the focal point of the world's attention for a few hours. All right, Shalom Chaver, Bill Clinton. You know, a billion people on TV were watching the burial of Rabin with all the Arab leaders who had made peace with Israel showing up. Uh, many of them, the well, first and only time in the state, stepping foot in the state of Israel, like Hosni Mubarak, to say goodbye to Rabin. So Har Herzl became the spot, uh, you know, everyone was focused on. 1.25 million visitors visited the grave in the first week. Can you imagine that? Israel is not a very large country. 1.25 million in the first week. And they left candles and wrote notes like it was the Kaisal Amaravi. It was like the Koto. For, for the secular especially, this was like their holy place. Now, Herzl's tomb is placed on an axis with the Western Wall, with the Kotel. The Kotel represents the Churban, the destruction of the Second Temple, whereas Herzl represents the construction of the Third Temple, meaning Herzl is the rebuilding of the Jewish Commonwealth, so the axis is facing right towards the destruction, rebuilding. Arlington Cemetery, near the Capitol, Capitol Hill, Mount Herzl to the Knesset, Givat Ram. Again, there's an alignment. Just like in America, so too in Israel, a lot of countries have this sort of thing, that the seat of government, the seat of power, and the seat of the corpses of those who once wielded power are in an alignment. Now let's get to Yad Vashem. Uh, and I don't, have, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we have a few minutes left, but what role does Yad Vashem play on Har Herzl? Yeah. Harvard now also has this electronic place that you knew a name. Yeah, yeah. Somebody that died. Right. Yeah, well, because they digitized the whole thing, and you can find it easily. It used to be very difficult to find who you were looking for, but now with the advance of technology, it becomes a lot easier. You go right to it. And they have a, a history of Yeah, yeah. It's done very, very well. A lot of effort was put into it. Now, Yad Vashem was established by the Knesset in 1953. Knesset passed a resolution to establish a Holocaust Memorial Museum, um, which would replace the initial Holocaust Memorial, which was on Mount Scopus, um, on Mount Zion, the Holocaust cellar, the, uh, which was a more religious institution. Um, and Yad Vashem would be a very secular and research-oriented institution. It would have a museum, a display to show people an exhibit, but it was more for research um, and to preserve the memory, the names of, that was the intent. The theme was Mishawalut Kuma, from Holocaust to rebirth. But spatially and administratively, it's really separate from the rest of Har Herzl. It's down the hill a little bit, tucked away to the side. The idea in 1949 had been to put all the concentration camp ashes in a mountain in Western, Western Jerusalem. In other words, go to, go to Poland, go to Germany, scoop up all the ashes of our brethren who died, the martyrs, and open up a vault in some uh, hilltop in Jerusalem and put it all inside to give a, a Jewish burial in Eretz Israel to the six million uh, martyrs. That ended up not, not happening. Um, Although there is some uh, uh, ashes from Auschwitz that were put uh, on Har Herzl. 
Now, Ruven Hecht, who prominent Jew at the time in Israel, suggested two graves be uh, atop Har Herzl. This ended up not being uh, put into practice, but it was a very popular idea for one at one point in time in government circles. One was Herzl himself. The other was the unknown slain Jew, meaning you find the ashes of an anonymous Jew of Europe from the concentration camps, from the death camps, and that those ashes of that Jew are symbolic of everyone. So not tons and tons of ashes, but there's a marker, the un, like the tomb of the unknown soldier, so the tomb of the unknown slain Jew. I think it was rejected because the tomb of the unknown soldier implies somebody fought and died with honor. The tomb of the unknown slain Jew is just a reminder of sheep to the slaughter, of the Jew as a passive victim. And while, yes, that's a, it's a historical fact and a reality, the state of Israel wants to move away from that. And so that concept was not put into place. Um, the geographic pro- proximity of Yad Vashem to Herzl's tomb meant that it's one protracted battle for the Jewish people. Again, a coherent narrative of national revival and restoration. Whereas the Western Wall is religious, Har Herzl represents Israeli patriotism and a secular national alter- alternative. A word about Yad Vashem. So it became a destination for Jewish visitors to Yerushalayim, Israeli Jewish visitors who would learn about the Shoah, who might not hear about it at home or in school because it wasn't very taught very well in the Israeli school system in the first few decades of Israel's existence. There was a certain quiet attitude towards it. And Yad Vashem gives people this kind of instruction that they need. It becomes important for diaspora Jews who make a trip to Israel, who are going to go to the holy places post-67, because those holy places are then available. But for those diaspora Jews who come pre-67, and there aren't that many holy places to go to, Yad Vashem is something of a, a sacred place for recent memory, diaspora Jewish memory. But maybe even more important than the Jews, whether local or or foreign, it's for the non-Jews, the Goyim. The Goyim come to Yad Vashem. It becomes the standard stopping off point for foreign dignitaries who are on official trips to Israel. Yes, they go to the Knesset and meet with their government counterparts of the Israeli uh, variety, but they will be taken to special places, post-67, a Kotel kind. But before that, and even after that, Yad Vashem, to tell the story of the Shoah. I saw this firsthand on my last trip to Israel. Uh, I've been to Yad Vashem three times. Uh, on my first trip to Israel, 20 years ago or more, another trip before they redid the museum, and then they redid the museum in the late 2000, uh, first decade of the 21st century, like 2005, 6, 7, 8, they redid it. And I, I went last year. And I was with, on a group of a bunch of non-Orthodox rabbis and Christian ministers. So about 16 of us. And right behind us was the foreign minister of either Sweden or Denmark. I, I never actually figured out what, what country he was from. But it was a foreign minister of some, some European country. And the security guards and the docent were taking him around the museum. But because he was on a schedule to go wherever he was going, 
and they wanted to show him whatever they wanted to show him, every time we stopped to, to look at exhibit, we were pushed into, no, keep, keep moving. You can't, you can't stay here. You've got to keep moving forward because you're ahead of this guy and he's got to keep moving. So our, our trip, which was with Christian ministers, and our goal was to teach them a little bit about the Shoah, was to an extent frustrated uh, because of that. But I, I was happy to see, at least with my own eyes, how the government and how the museum handles the VIP Gentile with kid gloves, but explaining things in their own language uh, to give them a full appreciation of the events uh, of the show up. Um, now, one, one last point for tonight is one of the most uh, emotional moments I ever had in Israel was on this last trip. On Har Herzl, down the hill at Yad Vashem, just as you get out of the end of the exhibit. Now, who knows what's the last piece of the exhibit at Yad Vashem? The children's memorial, which is very spooky. It's dark. There's just one light. It's refracted by a whole bunch of mirrors to represent the 1.5 million children who were killed. And you have to hold on to the railing because if you feel like you're going to fall over if you don't hold on to something because it's really, really dark. And it gets claustrophobic because there's a lot of people passing through at one time. And then you come out into the light. And you see the yonder, you, know, you see uh, over the hills. And for most of the people who were there, the Christians at least, this was their first time at Yad Vashem. And we got out of the Children's Memorial, and they're all tearing up. And one of the Christian ministers decides they want to say Kaddish. So the Reform Rabbi from Rye, my colleague, Rabbi Groper, and a minister... Martha Jacobs from Chappaqua are going to say Kaddish together. Now, how does Martha, Reverend Martha, know Kaddish? The answer, she was born Jewish. She went to shul till she was 16. And then she had a falling out with the rabbi, whatever it is. There were issues I'm not going to get into now, personal issues. And she went into the church and became a minister. And now has a big church in Chappaqua. Okay, but as a friend of the Jewish community, because she was ethnically one of us. Okay, I, so now I, I, I didn't know that part of her story from day one of the trip. This was like day three of a four day trip. And I, for whatever reason, didn't catch on that she was really born a Jew. And all of a sudden she's saying Kaddish. And I thought this was the weirdest and most bizarre thing of my life. But it was also very emotional because she was crying her eyes out. Because she had family who died. And here she was, a Christian minister saying Kaddish at Yad Vashem. So sometimes the world is a weird place. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, all right, we'll stop here. Next time, uh, we'll discuss the Knesset. Uh, not just the Knesset, but the idea of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and where the Knesset in various locations functioned before it got to the building it's in today. All right, see you next time.